I'm going to read it from Luke 12, verses 49 through 56. Jesus says this, I have come to bring fire on earth and how I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to undergo and what constraint I am under until it is completed. Do you think I came to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but division. In Matthew's gospel, it says the sword. From now on, there will be five in one family divided against each other, three against two and two against three. They will be divided father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. He said to the crowd, when you see a cloud rising in the west, immediately you say, it's going to rain, and it does. And when the south wind blows, you say, it's going to be hot, and it is. Hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and the sky. How is it you do not know how to interpret this present time? Well, thanks, Jesus, for that one, right? (laughs) So I want to share... Um, two reactions to this passage and two implications. Two reactions and implications. Many of you know that before I pastored at Monsieur de Uptown, uh, my wife and I, we lived in the Detroit area and we worked at a church doing youth ministry together. And uh, there were a lot of kids and one year we took a trip to Tennessee for a conference. And at that conference we took, I think it was like 60 or 70 or so high schoolers with us. And as you can imagine, uh, these trips can be kind of crazy at times when you have 60 or 70 high schoolers. But this particular trip was the one that defeated all the others. <laughs> Everything was breaking. I mean, all the time, things were just breaking, right? I remember uh, one kid comes to me and there's this massive hole in the drywall. And I said, well, what happened? He said, well, This kid shoved me into that drywall, and now there's a big hole. At one point, a kid took something of glass, I think it was a a cup or a vase or something, and thought it would be neat to see what would happen if he threw it off the balcony onto the parking lot. Another kid, uh, was they were chasing each other after one of the the nights of worship, into a, a, a restaurant's grassy area. And he tripped over a sprinkler head and the sprinkler just went off. So he broke the sprinkler head and water was going everywhere. And these are just a, a few of the, the many, 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 many things that trip that were a nightmare for any youth leader. And I remember getting everybody on the bus and uh, we had like a little thing that you can speak over, right? Everyone was on the bus in one spot. And I said, and I was losing my temper. I, I said, sit down, <laughs> shut up, you know? Uh, and I said, you guys, we brought you all the way down to Tennessee and you are acting like imbeciles and you are breaking everything and you're not listening to anyone. And you are missing the whole reason why we are here. You're missing the point. You're missing why we came. And I remember going back and sitting down, and I probably had other things to say. I'm not going to tell you my whole speech. Uh, But I sat down, 
And one of the kids that was very close with me, and he goes, ooh, I don't like Angry Dave. <laughs> and they all kind of were scared of me and didn't talk to me for a few hours until I had calmed down a little. And I think that what's happening here is, is, is Jesus is in the context where he continues to do these amazing works healing people. He continues to give incredible words of encouragement and truth. He declares that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's healing the sick. He's, he's uh, you know, giving sight to the blind. He's raising people back to life that are dead. And people don't seem to be understanding what he's doing and why he's there and what's happening. They're missing the main point. So I think that in this first part of this passage, we see, we could say, an unlikable Jesus in some ways, right? In fact, I would say that a number of scholars that probably wouldn't call themselves Christians actually don't believe that these passages are necessarily a true reflection of Jesus' character. They would say, well, Jesus really was about peace and love and grace and goodness, so they don't really believe that Jesus was the Messiah and certainly Jesus wasn't God. And so you don't give much credence to stories of Jesus speaking in this way. A lot of people like to dismiss them because they don't fit Jesus in many other settings. His loving and, and kindness and, and, and graciousness as a leader. Such an amazing person. But Jesus was fully human. And at times he got very serious with people. And he's saying here, you still don't get this. You still don't understand what's going on. So he says in this passage, fire is the reason that I came. Now the fire in the Old Testament, New Testament can mean fire of judgment or fire of the Holy Spirit. And in this case, I think he's talking about the fire of judgment. I really do. That judgment is going to come on earth, and I wish that it was already here. And then he talks about dividing families. Maybe some of the disciples said, I don't like this mean Jesus very much, or this angry Jesus very much. So here we have an unlikable Jesus. And I think the second thing that we can see in this passage is... Uh, one, that even if you took Jesus at his words and you said, I, th I believe Jesus actually said these things and I believe that this was a, a, actually happened and, and there's reasons for that, it may seem to you and it may occur to you that this seems like a bit of a contradiction, like the contradictory Jesus. I don't know if you remember this, but a few weeks ago, it wasn't that long ago, maybe a month or two ago, I gave a sermon about how Jesus came to bring peace. Cling to the God of peace was the title of the passage. I used all sorts of verses and examples from Jesus' ministry about how he called us to peace. Isaiah 9, 6 says, For us, to us, a child is born. The prophets are pronouncing this. To us, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 9, Jesus says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. I said in that sermon, Jesus came to bring peace. 
and how that impacted our salvation and our daily lives as we live as people of peace. I made, at least in my own mind, I thought a pretty good case for personal nonviolence and at least for Christians to challenge how many of us just accept and take on this military-industrial complex and that we should always be going and fighting battles and wars. Challenge is saying that we believe in the Prince of Peace and a kingdom that's entirely different than the kingdom of this world. And that that main event of, the, of, of this kingdom is the cross of Jesus Christ, where he gave up his life so that we may live. In fact, you could summarize most of the New Testament, in my mind, is saying that Jesus declares that he's come, uh, or sorry, that, that Jesus through his words and works has been saying that you will only face the judgment of God over his dead body. Even Paul interprets Jesus in this way. Colossians 1, 19 through 20 says, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So he says, peace, peace, peace. We're talking about peace nonstop, right? And all of a sudden Jesus says, I have not come to bring peace, but division. I've come to bring fire on earth. I've come to divide families and loved ones. And so it would be easy to say, is Jesus contradicting himself here? Some people have taken these passages, this one about Jesus saying, I'm bringing the sword or I'm bringing division or the ones about Jesus turning over tables in the temple and a few other examples and they've made these the primary Verses to interpret everything else. But I'm not so sure that's what's happening here. I'm not sure that we're understanding what Jesus means by division or bringing the sword in the way that it's often interpreted. One way that you can know that you have the wrong interpretation of Jesus is that uh, it entirely contradicts the other way that, you know, what he said in every other uh, passage in the, in the Bible. And one, one of the themes that's been very clear through Jesus' ministry that is not in contradiction to this idea of Jesus bringing peace is the cost of following him. You guys remember these different passages that we've studied in Luke thus far. The cost of discipleship. If you remember in Luke 9, Jesus says to a would-be follower that wants to bury his father before following Jesus, let the dead bury their dead. That's what he says. You come follow me. Or in, in Matthew, again, Matthew 5 and 6, Sermon on the Mount, he says, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out, right? It would be better to be without an eye than to sin with it. At another point, he says that in order to follow him, you must love Jesus so much that you hate your parents. <laughs> now, of course, we have to understand the context and Jesus is, is speaking and teaching. And in, in, in the first century, teachers and preachers of that day would use what's called hyperbolic language to get points across. So he's not saying that you must actually hate your parents. He's just saying that you must love me so much that it looks like your parents don't even matter in comparison. 
Or he's saying, you don't actually have to gouge your eye out. I'm not sure how helpful that would be. But how serious it is to follow Jesus and how serious we should take sin in our lives. So Jesus is pointing out throughout the Gospels how costly discipleship is. And the cost for many people to take on this type of discipleship is that it will divide them from their family. It will cause division. It will call, cause rejection in their lives. Do you realize that many people that we read about in the scriptures lost everything to follow Jesus? A number of my professors in seminary argued that the Apostle Paul was one of those people. That we often talk about how he lost his opportunity to be a Pharisee one day, so he lost his occupation, he lost his standing in the religious circles. But many people believe that it would have been most likely that he was married and that even his wife and his family and many other people would have essentially kicked him to the curb for his faith in Jesus. To become a Christian in the first century and in many places of the world even today may mean that you do not have those same relationships with your family any longer or friends. And so in a literal sense, it's a sword dividing up those places. So we... When we follow Jesus, Jesus is saying you should be prepared for divisions. The warnings about fathers and sons being divided, mothers and daughters, uh, it really is an inclusion of a, a passage from Micah 6, 7, 6, which says where the prophet warns of imminent crisis and urges that the only way forward is complete trust in God. And Jesus essentially says, I'm here to, to, to come, I'm bringing fire, right? And then he goes on to say that he's going to go under, he's going to take up this baptism. And I, that seems like a very odd phrase in the midst of all this other stuff, but he's not talking about a literal baptism that John the Baptist did. He's talking about the baptism that he would go undergo at the cross. And he says that I have a baptism to undergo. I have the, the suffering of the cross to go uh, under, uh, go um, through. And if you follow me through all of that, it's going to bring about this division that I'm talking about. In fact, in the parallel passage of Matthew, if you don't believe me that he's really talking about the cost of discipleship, it goes like this. Do not suppose that I've come to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Verse 35 says, for I've come to turn, and he goes through brothers and fathers and mothers and daughters. And then verse 37 continues on. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. So we see this passage is really all about this radical call of discipleship, the division that Jesus is talking about, which may not be the case for many of you. Many of your families maybe are cheering you on in your faith and your walk with Christ. But for many, it will cause strife. It will cause challenges. 
And as the passage continues on, Jesus talks about this, this crisis. He says that, that, that you guys are, are, are follow, following me and that you're kind of listening to what I say and you're seeing the, the healings and the things that I'm saying, but, but you're, you're, you're missing kind of the, the main point here. In verse 54, he goes on and says he talks about the clouds and he talks about you know, the, the wind and you, you can understand these things and what's going to happen, but you're missing the signs of the times right now. You're perfectly capable of seeing the weather. They were good at understanding what clouds rolling over the Mediterranean meant, that it would mean rain, and the wind from the, uh, you know, from, from the west coming in, it means this sultry weather. So why can't they look at what's going on all around them from the Roman occupation to the oppressive regime of Herod, from the wealthy and arrogant high priests in Jerusalem and the false agendas of the Pharisees. In the midst of all that, this young prophet is announcing God's kingdom and healing the sick. Why can't they put two and two together and realize that this is the moment all of Israel's history has been waiting for? Why can't they see the crisis of these kingdoms colliding? And if they could, would they take action while there was still time? You know, we interpret the Bible uh, almost always for ourselves. Do you know what I mean by that? We, we approach it very individualistically and we approach it as if Jesus is always speaking about something that we are going to experience ourselves. And that's not always the case. In this particular passage, when Jesus is talking about this crisis and this fire that's coming and this judgment that's coming, I believe he's speaking about something very specific that would happen in the first century. And many scholars are aligned that what's happening here is the fire and judgment that's coming, the crisis that's coming that they're not seeing is this collision course that they're on with the Roman Empire and with the kingdoms of this world. And if you know your history, in AD 70, the temple, God's temple, was completely destroyed, desecrated, and overtaken by Rome. And most scholars believe Jesus was not predicting just, this is not a passage just predicting future judgment for the church. It's talking about something that would happen in these people's lifetimes. And it did. So I guess the question becomes, if that's what he's talking about, what does this passage mean for any of us? If he's just talking about what happened in AD 70, well, that was a long time ago from today. What can we draw from this particular passage? What relevance do these warnings have for us? Well, first, I think we must understand the crisis facing Israel in Jesus' day in the way in which Jesus responds to it. Otherwise, we really won't understand Jesus. We won't get what he's after. We won't understand his mission. We won't understand his death and his resurrection and his kingdom and all these things that are so important. But I think it also alludes to us that there are things that we, uh, that God's doing in the world. There are signs that are happening amongst us that we often miss. 
So even though these are particular signs that Jesus is speaking to people in his particular day, there are warning signs in every generation of what God is doing that we should take heed of. So, what is the challenge to us today? I think there are two implications from this passage. The first is what we've talked about a lot already, and that's the radical call of discipleship. Still, to this day, there are many people around the world, and even people in our church, that I know that their decision to follow Jesus has impacted their lives and their families greatly. Spouses are not happy that they've made that decision, or, or kids don't understand what their parents are doing, right? Or parents don't, their parents don't understand what their kids are doing when they make these decisions to follow Christ. And maybe some of you have that story as well. I remember reading a, a book called Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus, was written by this guy named Nabil Qureshi. I'm probably saying that wrong. But he talks about his conversion from Islam to Christianity and the division that took place in his family and how he lost everyone because of that choice. But I think for many of us, maybe it's slightly different in that most of us may have grown up in some sort of religious families. And... Uh, very comfortable in their religiosity, right? But you know what causes a lot of disruption in mildly religious families is <laughs> true religion, right? It's following Jesus at his word. I think that so many people are, are in our context, are comfortable with you being mildly religious. Just don't be too religious, Right? They're comfortable with the morals of Christianity, but not the cross-carrying that's called to the disciples of Jesus. The confrontation comes when you maybe confront your parents or you confront your grandparents or you confront your siblings that you're saying, um, I'm not sure I can hold that view of wealth that you have anymore. I'm not sure I can uh, stand with you in your racism, subtle racism, any longer. Or name another issue about you read in scriptures and how those topics and those conversations go when you say, I really, truly want to follow what Jesus actually says. Those who, of us who call Jesus Lord must take this discipleship call seriously. No matter the division that it may cause and submit all of our lives and beliefs under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. The second thing is understanding our times. They hinted at already. I think we can take something from Jesus' warnings today. We too can... Look at clouds over Lake Michigan, figure out if a tornado's coming, right? Or if rain's coming, or if it's going to be a nice day for the most part. But do we see the signs of the time? 
Would Jesus say, can you read the signs of what are happening in your world right now? And I think if you look at the church landscape, and this, these are going to be broad categories, so please don't make too big of a deal about it, okay? But I'm just saying this. It's like, it seems like more of the conservative stream of Christianity has, has stolen Jesus for their own agenda. <laughs> we have They've immersed their words and language of Christianity into their lives, but ha- their lives have very little to do with Christ. They claim Jesus is Lord, but their lords are money and power. More of the maybe progressive churches, I think, have co-opted Jesus' moral teachings around how to treat the poor. Jesus' call for love and tolerance. He's in his social revolutionary agenda his words in many respects. They take those teachings seriously, thinking that Jesus is a wise, wise sage, yet dismiss the passages like this where Jesus is declaring there are consequences for sin. They reject the very one who is meant to bring us to God himself. And then there's kind of people that try to play the middle, <laughs> right? Sort of sit in the middle of all these things. And I think often those are the people that I was speaking about above have this religiosity but not a radical call to discipleship. Their version of Jesus is so tame that he would never have been crucified. He never would divide families. He never would have drawn the fire that he did from those around him. He never would have commanded any sort of following around him because he would have been so tame and uncontroversial. And he certainly would have never created a movement that still shakes the world. The church... very often will not fit with whatever the culture, systems of this world are, where they're headed and where they're going. Will we humbly stand firm in our faith and in Jesus as we fulfill his call on our lives to radical discipleship and love for our neighbors? The version of Jesus that we find here, the true Jesus is one who brings division and forces choices not only about how life is lived, but about whether you believe Jesus is the anointed one of God who has come to bring the kingdom of God to earth as it is in heaven and salvation to all who are willing to follow. Will we choose to see the signs and follow the one that's bringing heaven to earth and salvation to all who believe?